Have you ever read a series of books or watched a series of films, uh, but you've done so in the wrong order? Uh, I've done that once or twice. Uh, someone has given me a, a book to read and it's only later that I've realised it was part of a series and I've started at book two or book three rather than book one. Uh, and suddenly uh, when you learn that it, it makes sense why characters appear without being introduced or there are references that don't seem to make sense. Uh, the story is still understandable uh, but you don't get the full picture. Uh, parts of it are lost on you and it's only as you go back to the earlier stories that you see how everything fits together. But compare that to someone who has been a fan of the books or films since the first one came out. Uh, they, they've uh, watched all the films multiple times, they've read interviews with the actors, uh, they've spent hours online on discussing, discussion forums uh, trying to work out what will happen in the next book or film. Uh, they're counting down the days till the next book comes out or they go to a midnight screening at the cinema to see the film uh, before anyone else. For that second person, nothing will be lost on them. Uh, they'll get every reference, every seemingly throwaway line, which means nothing to a casual viewer will be full of meaning for them. Uh, the person who's just gone to see the film on, on a whim will still enjoy it, uh, but the enthusiastic fan will get so much more out of it. Well, that's a, a little bit like the difference between someone who is a, a new Christian today reading the New Testament and someone reading it like Jesus' disciples did uh, as they uh, came to it having been steeped in the Old Testament. Or those like Jesus' disciples who, who followed once the New Testament was completed. Perhaps we could ask, why was the Apostle Paul able to prove to Jews that Jesus was the Christ? Why was he able to write such rich letters? Well, the answer is because he was so well versed in this Old Testament background. It was like for years he had been in a room uh, that contained all sorts of different furniture and he, 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 he knew about the individual pieces of furniture but there was very little light in the room. But then when, when Paul was converted it was like the light was switched on and he could now see how everything fitted together. Suddenly it all made sense. And so part of what we've been doing over these last a uh, couple of months now is familiarising ourselves with this Old Testament background which would have been so familiar to the first Christians. We've been learning the language they spoke. Words like sacrifice, atonement, promised land, temple, king, priest, covenant, Abraham, David. Those words would have been full of meaning to Jews who became Christians. But they won't necessarily mean much to new Christians today. And so the more that we familiarise ourselves with this background, the richer our understanding of the New Testament will be. The more 
we'll see the New Testament not as a, as a standalone story, but as the second half of a story that began before human beings were created. And by the way, if, if you did come across a book or a film that you really enjoyed it, and then you realised that there were earlier books or earlier films, surely you would want to get hold of them. Uh, and we should have the same attitude to the Old Testament. If we want a, a richer understanding of the New Testament, we'll want to understand the Old Testament as well as we can. Uh, we'll see it as, as filling in parts of the jigsaw that we wouldn't otherwise have. And so today in our Bible overview, we're coming to the New Testament. Uh, today is really going to be part one of two as we try to cover all the New Testament books other than Revelation. Uh, so today and next time will be on everything in the New Testament but Revelation and then the final sermon will be uh, focused on the book of Revelation itself. And even as we turn to the opening pages of the New Testament it's striking to find just how much of the Old Testament we find there. And that brings us to our first point this morning. Which is that the gospel writers see themselves as writing the next instalment of an old story. That's a bit of a mouthful for a heading, but it is on the back of your outline. The gospel writers, they see themselves as writing the next instalment of an old story. There are some famous first lines in novels... Uh, maybe you might recognise one or two of these. Uh, it is a truth. Oh, okay. We'll just we'll start there. Uh, so yes, famous famous first lines. It, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Uh, so that's pride and prejudice. Or, or here's another one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities. And the Bible itself, of course, begins with a fitting introduction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But do you know how the New Testament begins? Uh, what's the first line of Matthew's Gospel? Could you quote it without looking it up the way that you probably could quote the opening verse of Genesis? Well, we, we read it earlier. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now to us that might sound fairly uninspiring. If we were given the task of writing the best news in the world, we probably wouldn't begin with a list of 42 names. But if we have grasped the Old Testament's teaching, uh, we would be on the edge of our seats as we read an opening line like that. Because who had God's people been waiting for for thousands of years? They'd been waiting for one who would come who would be the seed of Abraham. They've been waiting for the, the ultimate son of David. And so if you're a Jew reading Matthew's Gospel, it would be hard to find a more exciting first line. The one that they have been waiting for for so long is finally here. As a son of David, 
Jesus comes in the royal line as rightful king and as a son of Abraham his kingship will bring blessing to the nations. So much of what we've looked at in our overview of the Old Testament is summed up in the first line of the new. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew goes on the way he starts. Eleven times in the rest of his gospel, Matthew will say something like, this was to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah or, or Jeremiah or whoever. Uh, and it's the same with the other gospel writers. Uh, we we uh, think of Matthew as writing particularly for a Jewish audience in the first place, uh, but it's not just him who, who is uh, constantly referring back to, to the Old Testament. What about Mark's gospel? Uh, well, after a one-line introduction, he quotes the prophets Malachi and then Isaiah, who foretold John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord. Uh, then the middle section of Mark's gospel comes to a climax when a blind man sees what those with physical eyes can't see, and cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What about Luke? Well, in Luke, Luke chapter 1, uh, Jesus' mother Mary praises God because she sees his birth as the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Uh, as does John the Baptist, father Zacharias, still in chapter 1 of Luke. Uh, Zachariah also sees uh, Jesus' birth uh, as God fulfilling his promise to raise up a saviour from the house of David. And then you have John. He starts his gospel by identifying Jesus as the word who is God and who was with God in the beginning. And in verse 14 he writes a sentence full of meaning for those who know the Old Testament background. He says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, literally, we could translate it, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, boys and girls, what was the tabernacle? Well, it was the big tent in the wilderness where the people w came to worship God, where God was present with his people. And John is telling us that the same God who, who dwelt with his people in a tent in the wilderness is now living among us in the person of Jesus Christ. So all that's to say that you can't even read the first chapter of any of the four Gospels without uh, some of this Old Testament background being important. The coming of Jesus isn't a, a new story, uh, but the, the next act of an old one. And the, Gospels, the Gospel writers saw themselves as writing uh, the next installment of that but then secondly, this morning, Jesus and the apostles saw the gospel as a fulfillment of God's kingdom promises. Jesus and the apostles saw the gospel as a fulfillment of God's kingdom promises. Uh, what are Jesus' first words in Mark's gospel? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Each week in this Bible overview, we, we've thought about what the kingdom of God looked like 
in the Old Testament. It looked like God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing and presence. That had been previewed in the Old Testament in various ways, in in Eden, in the Promised Land. But now the reality is here. And today and next week we're going to see what that looks like. Both when Jesus was on earth, but also in the days of the apostles, uh, right down to our own day. Uh, We want to understand how the Bible fits together uh, to to help our own understanding of it, but also as we reach out. Jesus says in Matthew 24, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. Jesus doesn't just say that we're to proclaim the gospel, but we're to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel. It's not a different gospel. Uh, But by by calling it the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus uh, highlights that there is a depth to this message that we don't always appreciate. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at the kingdom of God in the New Testament, gospels and letters. Uh, But it would be quite a lot of ground to cover in one sermon. So we're just going to look at the first aspect of it this morning and then come back to the remaining three next time. And we're going to be using the same four categories that we've been using each week. Uh, So God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's presence and blessing. And just the first one for the rest of our time this morning, which is God's people. God's people. If we're looking for, for God's people in the New Testament in our own day who are we looking for what sort of people are we looking for well so far up to to the beginning of the gospels up until jesus coming to earth none of god's people in the bible have have managed to live up to their calling in the first sermon we looked at adam and eve as god's people but because of their sin their relationship with god was broken And their children would no longer be born as God's people. Then we looked at Abraham. God made great promises to Abraham. Abraham's described in the New Testament as the father of those who have faith and the friend of God. But Abraham sinned repeatedly against God, as did David, Solomon and the various kings of Israel who followed We've also looked at God's people in terms of Israel as a whole, but but no sooner had God rescued them from Egypt than they sinned against him in the wilderness. They sinned in the promised land. We saw last time how they were eventually exiled. So Adam, Abraham, David, Israel, all God's people, and yet all sinned. And if they failed to live up to God's standards, what hope do we have Well, the good news is that the New Testament describes Jesus as the last Adam, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, and the true Israel. And so God's people in the New Testament are those who trust in Jesus. 
Now that was true in the Old Testament as well. Uh, There is a common misconception that people in the Old Testament were saved by works, whereas in the New Testament people are saved by faith. But God's people in the Old Testament couldn't be saved by works any more than we can. Uh, That great chapter, Hebrews 11, which speaks of Old Testament heroes, has a repeated refrain by faith. They were who they were and they did what they did by faith. Faith in the promised Messiah. Uh, Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. But in the New Testament it becomes clear that the one that they had been hoping in and longing for is now here. And we're going to look briefly at three ways that Jesus is described in the New Testament. Uh, Three categories the New Testament gives us for understanding the Lord Jesus. And the first is as the last Adam, uh, which Jesus is described as in 1 Corinthians 15. So the first thing to remember about Jesus today is that he is the last Adam. Luke chapter 3 contains another of those genealogies, uh, like that list of names that Matthew starts with. But whereas Matthew traces Jesus' ancestors all the way back to Abraham, Luke traces them all the way back to Adam. Uh, And what comes next is very interesting. Because... (coughs) What does Luke record immediately after reminding us that Jesus has descended from Adam? Well, he describes Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. What's the connection there, you might ask? Uh, A list of names on the one hand, and then the story of Jesus being tempted. But it's no accident that they come side by side. Because you remember what happened with the first Adam. He was tempted by the devil in a garden surrounded by tame animals. Everything was in his favour, but he gave in to sin. But fast forward to the life of Jesus and we find him being tempted by the devil just like Adam was. Except Jesus isn't in a nice garden, he's in the wilderness. Mark tells us that he was with the wild animals. And so the odds are against him, but he resists the devil. The last Adam stands firm where the first Adam failed. And if we trust in him, uh, the record of failure that we have inherited from the first Adam can be replaced by Jesus' record of perfect obedience. And that is good news. So God's people today are those who, though fallen because of the sin of the first Adam, are trusting in the perfect obedience of the second Adam in their place. So Jesus is the the second Adam, the last Adam. He's also described as the offspring of Abraham. What had God promised Abraham? To your offspring I will give this land. And Paul quotes that in Galatians 3.16 and points out that it does not say to your offsprings, uh, referring to many, but but to your offspring, referring to one uh, who is Christ. So Paul sees God's promises to Abraham as referring particularly to the Lord Jesus. 
It's true, as we've seen the other week, that those who are of faith, all those who are of faith are descendants of Abraham. But the ultimate descendant of Abraham is Jesus Christ. And again, faith in Jesus is the key. God's people are not those who are are simply descended from Abraham, but don't share his faith. As the Apostle Paul puts it, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It isn't about merely physical descent, and and it never has been. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, and those who trust in Jesus are Abraham's children. Uh, there are other description of, descriptions of Jesus we could look at, such a, as the son of David. But for the sake of time, we'll just look at one more. Uh, and that is that Jesus is a true Israel. Uh, Jesus is a true Israel. Have you ever had the experience of climbing a mountain uh, and you think you're, you're getting to the top and you're nearly there and you realise that there is another peak up above you? Well, prophecies in the Bible can be a little bit like that. Uh, They are fulfilled often in two stages. And a great example of that is Hosea 11.1, quoted in Matthew 2.15, which we read earlier. Hosea describes God bringing his people out of Egypt by saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's Hosea looking back to what God has done in the past by redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt. But Matthew quotes it as a prophecy referring not to the nation as a whole, but to Jesus specifically. Remember how Joseph was warned in a dream to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. They stay there till the death of Herod, and then God tells Joseph and his family to go back to Israel Uh, and it's it's in reference to that that Matthew quotes Hosea's prophecy out of Egypt I called my son so a prophecy that originally spoke about Israel as a whole is here applied to Jesus what's the significance of that well Israel's calling had been to live as God's son but they had failed to live up to their task. But in sending Jesus, God sent his only begotten son to succeed where Israel had failed. And again, we see that particularly during Jesus' temptation. We've already seen that in Jesus' temptation, he succeeded where Adam failed, but he also succeeded where Israel failed. How long was the nation of Israel tempted in the wilderness? Boys and girls, do you know that? How many years uh, God's people were in the wilderness? Forty years. How long was Jesus tempted in the wilderness? Forty days. Uh, The number 40 speaks of, of testing and trial. Israel as a nation, they were tested and they failed. Jesus in the wilderness was tested and stood firm. And he did it in our place. So the message is that Jesus is a true and better Israel. And so 
Each of these descriptions are telling us that if we want to see how the people promise is fulfilled in the New Testament, we need to look firstly to Jesus. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Maybe you're wondering, well, are, are we not God's people today? Do Christians not fulfill the category of God's people? Well, yes, you're, you're right. But the word Christian is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. Instead, the, the New Testament authors prefer to use the phrase in Christ. Uh, so, for example, Romans 8, 8 doesn't say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are Christians. Though that would be true. But it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Of all the people who have ever lived, only Jesus earned God's favour. And if we want to know God's favour today, we must come to him in Christ. As those who have been taken from Adam's belt and hung on to Jesus' belt. And so the people promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in those trusting in him. The old distinction of Jew and Gentile is gone. Uh, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ go wrong here. Uh, they teach that God has a separate purpose for Israel and for the church. Uh, but Romans 11 teaches that there is one olive tree uh, and we as Gentiles are grafted onto it. Uh, boys and girls, did you know that you can graft one part of a plant or tree onto another part? Or if someone gets burned, uh, they can get, get a graft of part of their skin from another part of their body, uh, put, uh, put where, where the skin has been burned, or, or even a graft of skin from another person. And the Apostle Paul's picture of the church is as an olive tree. Uh, a tree that used to be mostly Jewish, but we as Gentiles have been grafted into it. Uh, we've, been, we've been put onto it. And the important thing to notice is that there are not two olive trees. There isn't a Jewish tree and a Gentile tree, uh, but there is one tree. One tree made up of Jews and Gentiles. In Peter's first letter, he takes Old Testament descriptions of Israel and applies them to his Gentile readers. Uh, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. Paul says in Romans that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. He says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male nor female for you're all one in Christ Jesus God's people are those of every race nation and language who are in Christ in heaven we'll see that perfectly uh, we'll think about that in our final sermon but even now we get a little preview of it in in the church Back in 2019, uh, for a newspaper article, I tried to add up the different nationalities that had worshipped together in this building in my time here. Uh, and there have been people from South Korea, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Australia, the United States and Canada, as well as uh, throughout the UK and Ireland. 
And there have been more countries represented in the years since then. Japan, France, South Africa, uh, maybe more. Now obviously the more diverse uh, a particular city is, uh, the more that will be represented hopefully in the churches of that city. In the most recent prayer email sent out by our missionaries in Nantes in France, uh, they had a picture of people who had gone to the pastor's house for lunch after church and there were 11 different nationalities represented. Uh, And we have here every week people from different countries, even if that's just uh, at the moment different parts of the UK. Uh, We also have people from the same country but from very different backgrounds. And it's a picture of the new humanity that God is creating in Christ. All one in Christ Jesus. So that is part one of the present kingdom. What the kingdom of God looks like here and now. It's not all that it will be one day. But for those who have eyes to see it, it is glorious. And by God's grace we get to be part of it. So are you part of it? Are you part of it? You aren't part of it simply by being born into a Christian family, though that is a great privilege. Uh, You aren't part of it simply by coming to church or even being a church member. Uh, But you can only be part of it through faith in Jesus Christ. The last Adam, the offspring of Abraham, and the true Israel. Amen. We'll close now by singing a psalm which speaks of Israel's failure to be the people God called them to be, but also of the blessings that he promised if only they would turn to him. It's Psalm 81, Psalm 81, starting on page 183. We'll sing verse 4 and then 6 to the end. So verse 4 there and then down to verse 6 and over the page to the last two verses as well. In verse 7, over the page, we hear God's longing for his people. Oh, that my people Israel would hear what I now say. And do we not hear in that the voice of the Lord Jesus, who would later say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So they were not willing. Israel failed in her role as God's servant, her role as God's son, her calling to be a light to the nations. But where Israel fell, Jesus stood firm. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And so the blessings in this psalm that that could have been Israel's if they had obeyed, instead come to all who put their trust in. In the Lord Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, because Jesus is the last Adam. He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the true Israel. So Psalm 81, 4 to the end. Uh, Let's stand and sing praise.